Revelation 4 and 5. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on, and one set on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they, and they did not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sit on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Revelation 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open up the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven thorns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us 
to guard by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Singing with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Holy One, the Lord God Almighty. As we receive your word, I pray that we will grow in godly wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Thank you for your son, for your grace upon your son, Johnny, from whom we receive your word this morning. Continue to equip, equip him with your power by the leading of your spirit. And may we, we be those who have ears to hear your voice, Lord Jesus. May our hearts be receptive and our minds alert. Few are worthy, O Lord, to receive all glory, honor, and power. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool, morning. Uh, if we've not met, uh, my name's Johnny. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, at the Gate Church. Indeed, if we've not met, then I'm going to give my age away um, at the start by asking if anyone's seen the film The Sixth Sense. Anyone hand up if you've seen the film The Sixth Sense? Okay, quite a few. That's, that's encouraging. I mean, to, to be honest, it's not a particularly nice film. It's not one that I'd necessarily um, recommend. Um, but The Sixth Sense is, is probably one of cinema's greatest twists. Um, which kind of makes you want to go back and watch the whole story again in light of the twist. And yes, if you've not seen it, I'm about to spoil it for you. Um, essentially, the plot revolves around Bruce Willis's uh, character, Malcolm Crow, who was a, a child psychologist. And long story short, he comes to work with this kid called um, Cole. And Cole, as I said, not very nice, gruesome film, not necessarily recommended, but he claims to see dead people. And the whole film essentially traces Cole's ordeal with this sixth sense. And we're satisfied in the ending when finally kind of Cole comes to live, he kind of comes to terms with this horrible trait. That's the ending and we're all satisfied. And then yet it, it kind of pans out, it kind of goes to a different scene where you've got um, Crow, the child psychologist, sitting next to his wife um, in their room. And, and his wife is grieving his death. See, the child psychologist that we'd kind of spent the whole film assuming was alive was in fact dead. He was one of the dead people that only Cole could see. The whole film just gets completely turned on its head and we want to go back and watch from the start and see how, how did they do that and how did we get fooled? Like, how, how was it so different? The revelation of the twist changes everything. But if The Sixth Sense kind of won all sorts of awards for its narrative twist, it comes nothing close to the twist in Revelation 4 and 5. In chapter 4, verse 1, have your Bibles um, or your journals open. Uh, we're going to be needing those today for the imagery. In, in verse 1 of chapter 4, John sees an open door 
through which he is able to see a revelation of heaven and how it relates to what's happening on earth. And this revelation isn't just like a normal ending of a story. In fact, you know what? It's not even the ending of a story at all. It it doesn't just tell us how history is going to end. No, this revelation shines heaven's light on the way that things on earth are now. And the unexpected twist reveals that from heaven's perspective, things are not as they seem. Just as the sixth sense twist helps us to understand all of the story that comes up until that point, so too do the twists in these chapters help us make sense of our lives here on earth as Christians. So what are those twists? Well, we're going we're gonna to see three of them today. The first one, twist number one, is that what looks chaotic on earth is actually under control. Secondly, what looks weak, in brackets, on earth is in fact powerful. And finally, what looks defeated is victorious. As one writer says, if if you're willing to have your world turned upside down, then read Revelation 4 and 5. So that's what we're going to do. Starting with twist number one. What What looks chaotic is under control. Let's have a look together at what John sees in verse 2 of chapter 4. At once I was in the Spirit. That's going to be used later, so just hold on to that thought. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Okay, so John sees this God's heavenly throne with God the Father, invisible to the naked eye, sitting on it. Verse verse 3, the Father has the appearance of precious jewels, and around the throne is a rainbow. Okay, these are pictures from the Old Testament books of Exodus and Genesis to portray, first and foremost, God's desire for relationship. In Exodus, it's with humanity. In Genesis, it's his promises to humanity. You know, you'd think, wouldn't you, that God, this God, would be so unapproachable, and yet at the centre of, of his being are allusions to his desire for relationship, both within himself but also with humanity. And that's bolstered further in verse 4. Have a look. Where 24 elders sit around the throne in white and with crowns on their heads, we've just sung about that, sitting on smaller thrones. The 24 elders um, kind of represent God's Old Testament people in the 12 tribes of Israel and his New Testament people sitting under the teaching of the 12 apostles, i.e. here you've got the, the complete people of God around the throne. Fizzing with power here, symbolised by thunder and lightning in verse 5. Verse 5 also reveals seven lamps, which we're told are the seven spirits. Seven, remember if you've been with us, represents fullness, completeness. I.e., so you've got seven spirits standing here for God's complete knowledge, his complete sight of all things, his complete presence in heaven and on earth. God is all-knowing. He is all-seeing. And this image, if it could be intensified, is intensified in verse 6. We've just sung about this, where his throne is pictured as standing over a glassy crystal sea. And we kind of think, well, that's pretty, but what's, what's that? Well, throughout the Bible, the sea is this biblical picture of chaos of sin and sinful humanity wreaking havoc on earth. Chaos. 
But look at the nature and position of the sea when seen from heaven's perspective. It's as static and stable as crystal, not left to wield its power indiscriminately. And why? Because it's under the feet of this all-knowing, all-seeing, and indeed almighty God. The one who reigns in sovereign power over every stray dust particle, every cancer cell, every virus strand. The all-knowing, all-seeing, almighty God in whose presence the carnage of another kid dinner or of the car crash on the M6 or of every human life that is left to its own devices just stands still under his feet. See the twist? Things aren't as they seem. You don't have to live long on earth for things to just feel dangerously out of control. Our lives are chaotic, aren't they, if we're honest? Whether due to circumstances or snippet from the Ivy household, three screaming children this morning in your face, or or, or whether it's from another diagnosis or our own sin leaking from our mouths and into our hands, and yet what looks chaotic on earth is gloriously and liberatingly in God's control. This God who chooses to reveal the core of who he is in his desire to be in relationship with people like us. What we see in John's vision here, Paul explains in this way when he says that God is, quote, working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1 or Romans 8, 28. For what purpose? Well, for the purpose of forming Christ and his people, for the good of his people. I mean, brothers and sisters, (laughs) does your life feel out of control? Do you feel out of control? Does the burden of this broken, virus-filled, suffering-drenched world to sometimes feel too much to bear? Or receive the, the, the good news, the gift of the twist of God's story, that things are not as they seem. What looks chaotic is under the feet of and in the hands of this majestic God who's working all things for the good of his people. Isn't that the most humbling and liberating truth you've heard in seven days? There's more. Twist two. What looks weak on earth is powerful. What looks weak is powerful. Have a look at the second half of verse 6 through to verse 7. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. So these four creatures essentially are an allusion to Ezekiel's, uh, prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, his, his vision. And they essentially represent the praise of all God's creation. But note here the symbolism of the lion, ox, man, and eagle. These are historical symbols of power used by human empires to display their strength. Remember that John's original readers here are suffering under persecution in the Roman Empire. They're being slaughtered for their faith. Rome is is seen as this great imperial power, and Christians really couldn't feel any weaker. Well, likewise, the the lion, used 
still on our coins was and is the, the sign of the British Empire. The ox or bull is used as a symbol of a strong stock market in the financial empire. The creature with a man's face, don't know if you've seen that recently, it's the picture of the, of the strength of the humanist worldview. The eagle is still used in America as its national symbol of power. I don't know why I'm looking at you, Caitlin, for affirmation there. Uh, <laughs> so, don't, don't miss the point on what's going on here. These strong empires on earth, they look huge and powerful. What are they doing? What are these powers doing? Verse 8 of chapter 4. They are bowing down day and night saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. All earthly power is forced to bend its knee to God. By the way, incidentally, John's original readers wouldn't have missed the irony here, which we probably will miss. So all over Rome's ancient walls, archaeologists have found graffitied words, eternal Rome. That was the view of Rome. It was and is and is to come, and yet Rome and its kingdom was destroyed. But you see here, not this kingdom, not the kingdom of God, who, despite earthly appearances was and is and is to come. See, in the UK, perhaps the persecution of Christians isn't as fierce as it was in ancient Rome, but it is for some believers around the world. And even for us in the UK, the tides of political power have turned against us. We're, we're told to keep quiet about our faith and what it entails. Don't mention the Bible. Whether that's Jesus being the only way to God or God's design for human sexuality or money or power or marriage. If we speak up, we, we obviously won't lose our heads, but we might lose our jobs, might lose our friends, might lose both. In short, Christians feel weak before the powerful empires of politics and media and business and employment law. And yet, things aren't as they seem. You're getting the strand here. Things are not as they seem. What looks weak is, in fact, powerful. When that opportunity arises to mention Jesus at work or with neighbours and we, we feel scared, brothers and sisters, the one to whom all earthly power bends its knee has called you to belong to him and speak for him. In him you're strong. That's why Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. And again, isn't that immensely liberating? Our society believes that human power is, is enough to make a better world, and we pull all our strength into that. And yet all earthly kingdoms across, across history, Rome and everything since, has fallen in its weakness, and ours will be no different. But God calls Christians to find our strength, to serve him in our weakness, we can't bring about social justice and church, a good church culture, or whatever it might be, in our own power. We need to acknowledge and live in our weakness, looking to his power. And when we do that, we'll, we'll serve him and his kingdom without burden or anxiety or, or pressure, because he's the powerful one. And he'll use our efforts however he sees fit. What looks powerful on earth is weak from heaven's perspective. And it's in this weakness that it bows down to God and sings those words in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. 
For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And on the flip side of that, what looks weak on earth, namely God's kingdom and its citizens, are actually seen here as immensely powerful and will live forever into eternity. What looks weak is in fact powerful. Final twist. This is the big one. What looks defeated is in fact victorious. So that's chapter four. But in story terms, chapter four kind of sets the stage for the drama of chapter five. If you like, the, the, the characters now take their place and the story starts, if you like. And right there at the beginning of the story, chapter one, sorry, chapter five, verse one, God the Father is seen there as holding a scroll. He's holding a scroll with seven seals. And this symbolizes all of human history, okay? Which, let's face it, has been a pretty kind of evil tale of humanity rebelling against its creator. And this is how the story points to the protagonist, the hero of the story. Essentially, the plot here is revolving around finding such a hero who could come and open this scroll, one who's able to restore God's plan for humanity to himself. Verse 3, look at it. (laughs) It's not good news. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll. It's devastating. And so, verse 4, John weeps. Will history be left to spin out of control under the burden of human sin? Will chaos win the day? Who's worthy to open the scroll? Who controls the scroll and its seven seals? See, the hero of the story is himself powerful. He is a lion here, the lion of Judah and root at his son of David. Both here are Old Testament descriptions of God's king, who God would send into the world to restore humanity to himself. Of course, the hero here is Jesus, right? And yet yet here comes the greatest twist the world has ever seen. And if you've read the gospel story so many times, if you've seen the movie countless times, and you know this twist is coming and it doesn't take you by surprise, then can I just ask you to come to it afresh? This is mad. Because here is the lion to defeat evil and human sin and subdue all earthly powers set up against God. Here he is, and we are told, verse 5, that he has triumphed, and yet pan out a bit, and what do you see? The victorious hero of God's story, of all history and all reality, is at one and the same time not only a fierce lion, but a lamb. And not only that, verse 6. A lamb looking as if it had been slain. A slaughtered lamb is God's hero. We didn't see that one coming. Here is the cross of Christ where the lamb of God, Jesus, died as he paid in full the price of all sin of all of those who would come to him. You see, at the center of the divine drama of history stands the cross The narrative twist that no one ever expected. Ask anyone what they would assume, you know, would describe God's coming king. And I assume the words power, glory, and wisdom would be near the top. And yet here we have the weakness, the shame, the foolishness of the cross. Just look at the twist. 
The Lamb of God who was slain on that cross in weakness and shame and folly is, verse 5, the one who has triumphed. What looked like defeat as Jesus died proved victorious over evil as he was raised from the dead. Colossians 2 says that by dying, Jesus, quote, disarmed the powers and authorities, that's evil, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, in Satan's greatest attack on God, in humanity's greatest act of evil by putting Jesus to death, God in Christ triumphed, rising three days later and establishing, triggering the growth of his eternal reign. And this risen Jesus, with the wounds still visible, stands, verse 6 there, at the center of the Father's throne. Blessed Trinity, right? Where is the Trinity in the Bible? Here it is. God the Father writes the script of human salvation. God the Son, Jesus, equally God, on that same throne, acting out that script, achieving salvation for us. But you see where this is going? (laughs) Third person. How are people going to hear How will such a salvation reach the hearts of of the people Jesus died for? How will this victory be enjoyed by by losers such as me? Well, in verse 6, you see God the Holy Spirit, the one who beckons people to come and participate in God's victory. This is what it it means there in verse 6 when it says the lamb had seven horns, right, symbolizing his complete power, quote, which are the seven spirits. God's spirit is powerful. It is God's, he is God's power to, to reveal God's plan for history and eternity to the hearts of people like you and me, which is essentially where you see this chapter going. Because after all, which of us on our own and in our own strength could have come to worship this Jesus as king, <laughs> this slaughtered lamb? With only an earthly perspective, this looks like defeat, not victory. It looks like God's kingdom defeated, not established. It looks pathetic, not compelling. But of course, we're like John, aren't we? We need the Holy Spirit to reveal the twist in God's salvation story to us. Without him, just like every other religion in the world, we'd, we'd assume that one day we might get into heaven if we're good enough or strong enough. If our good deeds outweigh our bad, we'd assume that God's victory looks like the opposite of the cross. But look back at verse 2 of chapter 4. I said we'd come back to that. John describes himself as in the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. And by that Spirit, he was shown an open door into heaven. And it's the same for us. From our earthly perspective, we believe the door to heaven is closed, or at least really hard to open. And yet it's the same Holy Spirit who reveals to us this Jesus, who died for every sin, every misdeed, every failing that closed heaven's door to us. It is this Jesus who has not only opened the door to us for us to have a little peek through, but he has literally ripped the door off its hinges. And we are shown what we never would have seen with just our earthly perspective, namely that heaven is open for each and every one of us this morning. If you come to faith in this king, this slaughtered lamb, this lion of Judah, it's open. How about that for a twist to our story? 
Do you see Jesus' beauty? Do you see the Lamb of God who isn't pathetic but is worthy of our praise? Do you sense this morning your your own need of him to take away your sin? Well, praise him. The God who sent his Holy Spirit into the world and who opened whose eyes? Your eyes. Our eyes as believers. Maybe today is the first time your eyes feel open to the majesty of Christ. Well, praise him. That's God the Holy Spirit showing you the Lamb of God who was slain for our victory. All who come are numbered among the forbidden, uh, the forgiven, not the forbidden, <laughs> the forgiven and the blood-bought people of God. Again, look who turns up in verse 8 of chapter 5. Represented here by the 24 elders, the complete people of God. And who are, who are doing what, incidentally? Who are doing what? What's the natural poise of anyone who has seen this majestic Jesus give his life for us? What's the natural poise? Verse 8, we fall down in worship. We fall down in worship. Verse 9, a new song fills our hearts. You are worthy to take the scroll, Lord Jesus, and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is us. And it's at this point that the whole heavenly host join together the people of God and every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And verse 12, they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And as this refrain ends, verse 14, the four living creatures, that's all earthly power in this world, and the complete people of God represented by the elders, they fall down and they worship and the the curtain almost comes down and the scene just ends. And as people looking into this heavenly vision from an earthly perspective, we are left in no doubt as to who is victorious. What looked defeated won. The lamb who was slain was the lion who conquered. Indeed, Philippians 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every time acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At which point, all of God's people go wild and we celebrate, don't we, his victory. But let me ask you this question. If Jesus reigns victorious through what looked like defeat, what will that mean for, his, for, for life as his followers? Because in one sense, John's pretty clear. Look at verse 10, speaking of Jesus about Christians. The elders say, you, Jesus, have made them, that's Christians, to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. Key bit, and they will reign on the earth. Christians will reign on the earth. Do you see that? That's heaven's perspective of you if you're a Christian. In Jesus, you are victorious. Does your life feel victorious? If you're anything like me, which you're probably not, 
but your life feels very far from victorious. Sometimes it doesn't feel like you're even coping, let alone reigning on the earth. Whether it's the boredom of doing the nine to five or the constant parental worry, whether it's the problems that keep mounting up or the shadow of grief, whether it's the the battle against sin or the crushing belief that God doesn't love you, whether it's the the chaos of this world that weighs you down or your constant and futile fight for control, it just doesn't feel like we're reigning. (laughs) We're all stumbling. Many of us are wounded. Many of us suffering. Many of us carrying the weight of wounds that feel too great to bear. And in it all, the growing whisper at the back of our heads, which starts to become more like a shout, is where is this victory in Christ for me? I read that in Christ we're more than conquerors, and yet most of the time I'm doing well just to put one foot in front of the other. Well, let me ask you the question again. If the risen and reigning King of heaven is the one who, while on this earth, was wounded and slain, what might it look like for you to reign while in this world? Often being victorious in Jesus will feel like defeat, despair, Walking wounded in the likeness of the lamb who was slain. We'll feel like giving up, packing in this Christian stuff, or it may just feel so boring and mundane that reigning in Christ should feel more special than this. And yet now we see why having heaven's interpretation of what's happening in our lives on earth here is so important. Remember the twist? What looks defeated is in fact victorious. Our our eyes may not see much victory in our lives. The outside world may hardly look at the church and see us as heirs of God's coming kingdom. And yet, if this was true of our Savior, would we expect anything else for ourselves? In all the brokenness, in all the sin, in all the chaos, in all the boredom, in all the anxiety and failures, Jesus is our conquering king who has made his eternal victory our eternal victory. Things are not as they seem. What looks defeated is actually victorious. And one day when we go to be with him, when heaven's courts are our home, we won't need reminding of this anymore. Things will finally be as they truly are. There'll be no more chaos because God will be seen to be un- in control. We'll no longer feel weak because we'll be reigning in God's power. We'll no longer feel defeated because Christ's victory on the cross will have achieved for us what it was always intended, our eternal salvation. So just as I close, I guess the question is, what, what, do, we, what do we do with this? I don't know if you've spotted the one command in the passage, the one instruction, just three words long. Verse five, I think. John, do not weep. Don't cry, John. Not a command against tears, but a compassionate reminder that there's a heavenly reality that turns our earthly lives upside down. A hope that is unseen, which puts an end to despair and offers a joy that persists through the tears. And this very present reality, real for you this morning... This hope and joy is summed up by what the New Testament writer to the Hebrews writes. I'm going to quote it at length. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne tiptoeing, no, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of great strength and in our time of need. Don't cry, John. Don't cry, Christian. You see, this majestic Jesus is not only the one who ascended into heaven, but he is the one who this very moment is interceding for us, being the bridge between us and God, that is being the bridge between how we experience life on earth and the reality about us that is true in heaven right now. He empathizes with our weakness and suffering and chaos and carnage and sin, and yet he didn't sin. And that's so important because as we're about to sing, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. And so that throne room in John's vision that sounds totally out there and like something that we could never really enter is actually a place that we, having had our sins removed from us, can approach with confidence. It's somewhere we even belong now, this morning. Even though our lives look anything but heavenly, even when things aren't as they seem. But one day, as Jesus' blood achieves for us what he always promised it would, we'll take our place around God's throne where we'll be forever and finally we'll see things as they are. Shall I pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word and your life and your death gives us every expectation that should be ours here on earth. Lord, we thank you that you're in control despite our lives feeling out of control. We thank you that you're powerful despite the fact that we feel so weak in Christ. Father, thank you so much that, that it feels like we are defeated and that your victory is not ours. We thank you that what looks defeated is in fact victorious. We thank you, Father, that things are completely different in heaven about us than what we feel here on earth. Minister to that by our souls. We thank you that you sent out your spirit as you say here, and we pray that, Holy Spirit, you administer that to our souls as we feel weak and broken and however we feel this morning. We pray that for your name's sake. Amen.